as the ushers can finish receiving your offering, I just, I'm looking over the, the congregation this morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, just raise your hand. Way up high so everybody can see it. We want to make you feel welcome this morning. Let's give all these visitors a hand. Thank you for being here. And if, uh, if you've not yet filled out a card, we're, we'd like to have a record of your visit. We're not going to blow up your email box or your mailbox with literature. Uh, we just want to be able to give you a, a little token of our appreciation for your being here this morning, a little gift, and that's at the Welcome Center out in the foyer. Uh, but we're so thankful that you're with us this morning. Thank you for being here. Um, I believe that one of the great things that, that I can do for you as this church's congregation is to make it possible for you to have tools that will enable you to be better students of the Word of God. Amen? And something came across my email this week, and then I received later on a, a physical uh, copy of this in snail mail. And it's a Bible study tool. It's a new Bible that is being released by Tyndall Publishers here in the next few weeks. And it's called the Filament Bible. And Leonard, you have a a video, just a real short video that will kind of enlighten us on how it works. The reason I wanted to show you this video, this is the most amazing thing I've, I've seen that, that has hit the presses and can't hardly wait till it comes out. Think about this. I don't know how many of you have been in my office, but you, if you have, you've recognized that I have a few books in there. I have uh, roughly four bookshelves full of books. This Bible and the app that comes along with it for your smartphone or your tablet will literally replace one entire bookshelf in my office at the touch of your fingertips, making it possible for you to to study the Word of God as never before. I have no idea yet what it's going to cost, but I can guarantee you it'll be worth the money. So I'll keep you posted on, on when that becomes available. I'm just so excited. Uh, it's the New Living Translation, so it's very, very readable. Uh, it, it reads more like just a, a regular book than, say, your conventional Bible like this one. Uh, and, uh, and it'll be in language everybody can understand. And with just the push of a button, you can find everything about the characters, the, the history, the context, the maps, 
everything available to you instantly. So I'm excited about this, and I wanted to let you know about it so that when it becomes available, if you're interested, we can probably get a group deal on ordering a number of them. So we are in part eight of our sermon series today. And oh, one more thing before I get to that. Steve had already announced this Wednesday's evening of worship and prayer. This is something that God laid upon my heart. What did I say, Wednesday? Thursday. Thank you. This is something that God laid upon my heart as I prayed at the Wailing Wall at the temple in Jerusalem. That God wanted us to, to take the lead in tearing down walls that have separated the churches of our community. God wants every church in this community, every Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, to be working together. We're not, we're not called to build our church. We are called to build His church. And He said, when you do that, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what this event is on Thursday at 7 o'clock is our first effort to unite not only pastors of different churches in this community, but congregations of those churches just to come together for an evening of praise and worship and pastors linking arms to show that we're working in this together. Do you think that will help our community? I know it will. And so we want to, we want to just unite with these other congregations and let them know, hey, you know what? We're not in competition with you. We don't even want our own piece of the pie, so to speak. We just want to see Jesus lifted up. And we're going to lift him up. We're going to pray for our community. It's going to be a great evening. We're hoping that this will become a monthly effort, uh, alternating at different churches throughout our community. But we're going to be hosting the first one. And ladies, I have no idea how many to prepare for. However, I do know this. You prepare the desserts, and I'll see to them that they find their way somewhere, all right? No, I'm kidding you about that. We have a children's ministry that we can utilize whatever's left, so bring desserts. We're going to have a time of fellowship after it's over, and it's going to be a great evening. I'm excited about it and hope you can make arrangements to be with us. We are in part eight of our sermon series, What a Disciple Looks Like. We'll be concluding this sermon series next Sunday. And uh, today we're going to be talking about, we, we've been talking about the different aspects of, of what it means to be a disciple and what a disciple's life should look like. And today is, is a very important part of that because today I want to talk to you about uh, the disciple's heritage, that being multiplication. Didn't know you were going to have a math lesson when you came to church this morning. But we're going to talk about multiplication. And to do that, I'd like for you to go with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. And while you're turning there, let me just thank you for all the kind sentiments and the prayers and, and all the support that you have given to Brenda and to her family. Uh, hopefully, Brenda will be able to be back with us soon. Um, it's just a, it's a tough time. And you know what? God's got his own timing. And uh, we know that Wanda is ready to meet Jesus and uh, have every reason to believe that will be soon. But I thought that last week as well. So just continue to pray for Brenda and uh, her entire family, especially her dad. 
uh, during this difficult time. I was thinking as I was sitting in the room with them yesterday, 68 years of marriage. 68 years. That's a, that's a rarity in the world in which we live in. But that being said, that makes it all the more difficult to be able to let go of that partner that has been such a, a close part of Carl's life for so many years. But thank you for your prayers. Second Timothy chapter number 2. You know, in the, in the Great Commission, Jesus uh, made, it, made it very clear that every one of us as his disciples is called to reproduce. I, I like to think of it in this way, in very simple terms. I'm pretty simple-minded, so I need simple terms. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Do I need to go on? Disciples who are reproducing other disciples. He said, There go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, I know that's not 2 Timothy chapter number 2, but you needed to hear that before I go on. Now, uh, every disciple is to be involved in the work of living for Christ. But every disciple is also called to be involved in leading other people to Christ, mentoring other believers so that they too might also be productive for Christ. And that brings us to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. Paul says to his student, now this is very important for you to understand this context, Timothy is Paul's student. Paul is Timothy's mentor in the faith. And he says to him in verse number 1, You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What great words. Wow. Paul is, is speaking about our heritage, that of multiplying ourselves. Um, I, I, I like to think of it in terms of investment. We invest our lives in the lives of others, as did Paul investing his life in the life of Timothy. And we do that so that others might become disciples just like we are. Now, again, we've been talking about what a disciple looks like for the better part of seven weeks. And, and so I'm, I'm hoping that you have a good handle on what Christ's expectations are of you and I as his followers. He wants us to reflect him in the way that we live our lives, the way that we, we uh, follow him. And, and so Paul here is challenging his student Timothy to become intimately involved in the life-changing march of passing on God's truth from one generation to the next. Not just Timothy, but every one of us. Perhaps you've heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham once said this, One of the first verses of Scripture that Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, encouraged me to memorize was 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 2. 
He said, this is like a mathematical formula for spreading the gospel and enlarging the church. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy shared what he knew with faithful men. And these faithful men would then teach others also. And so the process goes on and on and on. If every believer followed this pattern, Dr. Graham said, the church could reach the entire world in one generation. Mass crusades. He knew a little bit about mass crusades. Mass crusades, he said, in which I believe and to which I have committed my life will never accomplish the Great Commission, but a one-to-one ministry will. The importance of multiplication. Now, this is what Paul wrote to challenge Timothy to involve himself in. A focused ministry of leading others to become true disciples of Jesus, which means that they too in turn are able to become true disciples of Jesus. Herschel Hobbes, chairman of the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 1960s, said it this way, The work of evangelism is never complete until the one evangelized becomes the evangelizer. It's part, it should be part of our disciple DNA. To want to share what we've been given of the good news of Jesus. How many of you have experienced the good news of Jesus? Now it's our responsibility to share that same good news with someone else who desperately needs to hear it. Whose life desperately needs to be transformed and changed just as ours was transformed and changed. So what can we learn from Paul's words here about living out our heritage as a disciple? What principles can we apply in our relationships with others that will result in growing the kingdom through this process called multiplication? Well, I find four principles, and I'll give you several examples for each principle this morning. But the first one that I find in these verses from 2 Timothy chapter number 2 is the principle of example. If I'm going to be effective in developing others as true disciples of Jesus, it's absolutely imperative that I set the proper example. Uh, You've heard it said, follow me as I follow Jesus. Well, that's really good as long as you're following Jesus or as long as I'm following Jesus. But if there are things in my life that I'm doing that do not reflect the fact that I'm following Jesus, and you follow that pattern, I am setting a dangerous precedent for you to follow in. It's absolutely imperative that we follow this principle of, of example. It was because of his example that the Apostle Paul was able to say in the church, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verse number 1, and I love this verse. It says, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. Be imitators. Now, I have used that terminology with other congregations prior to this one, and I've caught some flack for saying imitating Jesus. Well, deal with it. I have a, my second oldest grandson, Drew, many of you know Drew. That little knothead, he, well, he's 18 years old now, so he's not little anymore. But several years ago, 
he began this thing of trying to imitate his grandpa Terry. And unfortunately, he has access to video cameras. And so this guy will, will come on and film himself shooting a video of Grandpa Terry preaching. Now, I, I'm not going to go into every detail. But just let me tell you that for some reason, and I've not figured out why, he puts this pillow under his shirt. <laughs> and, and he puts on a pair of glasses... And he tries to sound just like me. Now, I don't think he sounds anything like me, but everybody seems to get a kick out of it. What is he doing? He's imitating Grandpa Terry preaching. That's what we are to do with Jesus. After seven sermons, we're supposed to be looking like him. Now we need to start acting like him. And if we act like him, that's another way of saying, imitate him. Paul said, imitate me as I also do Christ. Let me tell you what, friends. Maybe it is a poor choice of words, imitating. I don't know, but it gets the message across, doesn't it? If you imitate Christ in the way that you live your life, I think you're going to ultimately come to the place where you hear, well done. That's all that matters. Imitating Christ. You know, back in the days of Christ, classroom teaching was not done as it is today. They didn't have a, a classroom with, with desks and the students would, would sit and take notes while the teacher taught. No, the way that they taught back then was you would have a teacher that the Greek called the Matthaites, the Matthaites would lead the, the followers or the disciples, which they called the didaskalos. You don't need to know that. I just wanted to impress you with my knowledge of Greek. The Matthaites would lead the didaskalos through perhaps an olive garden. And he would be all the time speaking these teachings to those who were following, and the word would just pass from one to the other what the teacher was teaching. Now, I just have to believe, being a, an observer of people for many, many years, that those students weren't a whole lot different than they are today. And not only were they passing along the teachings that the Matthaites was teaching them, but I'm guessing that if that Matthaites maybe tripped over a stone, the one following him would trip over the stone just to be a smart aleck. Are, are, you, are you catching my drift? In other words, those who follow did what the one who leads would do. They would imitate. That's what it means to be a disciple. One who imitates the ways of Jesus. Follow me as I Follow Jesus. Now, specifically, there are two things about the example that we have to set before others that we want to encourage toward true discipleship. The first one is the example of submission. Timothy had been mentored by Paul. Timothy, at the point of this writing, was now the pastor of the church in Ephesus. But despite the fact that Timothy 
occupied this position in the church, that didn't mean he had anything, had nothing else to learn. And Paul was there to provide him what he needed. He still needed someone to mentor him. He is a young pastor. Boy, I could preach on that one for a while. Oh, that we would have pastors who were willing to continue to learn. Pastors who would continue to seek the advice and the experience of those who have blazed the trail ahead of them. Timothy had been mentored by Paul. He still needed mentoring. A true disciple is a lifelong learner. He or she will never get to the place where they think they know all that they need to know. Can I just say this? When we stop where we are, wherever that is, we're no longer moving forward. And if we're no longer moving forward, there's a great danger in losing your ability to walk with God because God is always moving ahead. And he wants you to follow, not stand still. One of my Bible teachers used to say it this way. He said every disciple needs three types of relationships in his life. He needs a Paul who can mentor and challenge him. He also needs a Barnabas who can come alongside and encourage him. And he also needs a Timothy, someone that he can pour his life into. Man, I love that. Uh, Friends, if you're not yet mentoring a new believer in Jesus, look for one. They can use it. Without even knowing them, I can tell you they can use it because I have been one and I still am one. I still am one. Another example that we have to set before others is what I call the example of surrender. The Amplified Translation of the Bible translates verse 2 in this way. Be strong, or that is strengthened inwardly, in the grace or spiritual blessing that is to be found only in Christ Jesus. Timothy was to look to no other source other than Christ as the source of his strength. Did you know that's what a picture of true surrender looks like? When we look to Christ as being the source of our strength. A true disciple has to be surrendered. Surrendered to Christ. You notice what Paul said to him in the first part of that first verse? About being strengthened in, his, in Christ's grace. The only way you're going to be able to be able to be strengthened in Christ's grace is through surrender. That's why, friends, the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 4.13, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You get it? Now, here's how it looks in practical terms. When self is in control, I surrender to where Christ is in control. Where I define the terms of our relationship with Christ, I surrender to allow Christ to define the terms of my relationship with Him. Where I set the agenda for my life, I surrender to allow Christ to set the agenda. Where I formerly found strength in my own strength, I surrender and I now find my strength in Christ. 
principle of example. It can't be underemphasized, friends. It's so important. If I'm going to be effective, if you're going to be effective in encouraging others to become disciples of Jesus, you must first be a true disciple yourself. You have to set the example. The second principle that we can apply to our relationship with others is what I call the principle of enlistment. Once I accept the challenge of mentoring another believer in the effort to encourage him or her uh, to be a true disciple of Jesus, where do I begin? What does that look like? Well, first of all, you need to begin by looking to God for guidance. Uh, this, This is something that the Holy Spirit brought to me a couple of weeks ago when I was preparing this, and I've been dying to share it with you. Go to with me to the book of Luke, chapter number 12. Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, I'm sorry, verse 12. When I say looking to God for guidance, what I mean is pray about it. Now here's the example that's set for us in Luke 6 through 12. It says, during those days, he, speaking of Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came... He summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them. He also named them apostles. Now, what does that mean? It's nothing short of amazing to me that when we read in the Gospels of the many occasions when Jesus would remove himself from the crowds, from his disciples, to get away, to spend time in prayer, look what happens after nearly every time that Jesus does this. He removes himself in prayer, and then we find, but we've never really talked about the fact that the results of his prayer follow his prayer. Now think about that. Jesus needs prayer? Well, obviously he did. I mean, he'd remove himself from the crowd and pray all night long to his father, and then he would get up from his place of prayer, and he would go do something based on what he had been praying about. And what Luke is telling us is on this occasion, Jesus spends the entire night praying to his heavenly Father, and when morning comes, he calls his disciples to him, and he chooses 12. You know what I think he was praying about? Heavenly Father, give me guidance as to which 12 to pick. Have you ever thought about that before? That's what Jesus was needing that night in prayer. He needed guidance. It's interesting to note that he selected the 12 only after having spent time with them, observing them, and then he prayerfully seeks the Father's guidance before selecting them. Now, our scripture says that he selected them to be his apostles. And I want to I just take a little short rabbit trail here for just a second because I think this is important. We're talking about apostles. We're talking about disciples. Is there a difference? Well, let me help you with that. A disciple is a follower and student of a mentor or teacher or any other wise person. In this case, obviously Jesus. Whereas an apostle is a messenger an ambassador, someone who champions a critical reform, belief, or cause. In this case, it's the gospel. 
A disciple is someone who accepts and helps in spreading the teachings of another. So why is it important that we distinguish these two terms from one another? For this reason. All apostles were disciples. But not all disciples were apostles. Throughout the Gospels, we are told about Jesus and his 12 disciples. Once they completed their discipleship by walking with Jesus for three and a half years of his earthly ministry, he then appointed them fully to be his apostles. An apostle, as it's strictly defined by the New Testament, no longer exists today. There were three conditions that had to be met to fulfill the criteria of being an apostle. And here's scripture and verse for you to look it up. One, the person had to be an eyewitness to Jesus after his resurrection. You say, well, Paul was an apostle. Yeah, he was. But you know what? Paul had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Jesus had already gone to heaven, but Jesus appeared to the Paul on the road to Damascus, struck him blind, as a matter of fact, just to validate how powerful that experience was. That's found in 1 Corinthians 9.1. You have to be an eyewitness to Jesus after his resurrection. Secondly, you had to have been chosen by the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 9, verse number 15. And thirdly, you had to have ministered with miraculous signs and wonders. That's Acts 2.43 and 2 Corinthians 12.12. Now, having said all of that, I fully realize that there are churches in the world today who still call their leaders by the name Apostle. And there are also self-proclaimed apostles in the world today. But if you utilize the New Testament criteria, there are no more apostles. Now, that's unless, of course, and I'm not going to tell God what he can do and what he can't do. If the risen Jesus appears to someone as he did to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, that person could probably be an apostle. But that would require substantial evidence, as did Paul's experience. Paul encountered the risen Jesus. He was knocked off of his horse. He was stricken blind. And then only after following specific instructions as to what to do next did Paul receive his sight back. And from there, there's a very important verse in the book of Acts. We we see Paul getting saved on that road to Damascus. We see him stricken blind and we think, boy, this launched Paul's ministry. No, it didn't. Not yet. Paul trained for some two years as a disciple of another disciple before he was commissioned to be an apostle. Do you see the difference? And it's an important one, I believe. But back to our principles from our Lord's example and and from what Paul tells Timothy about enlisting someone to mentor. The first thing, look to those with whom you have a personal relationship. Now, this is important because it's through relationship that the mentoring process takes place. Have you ever heard the phrase, more things are caught than will ever be taught? Boy, that's a good one. 
More things are caught than will ever be taught. That defines a very important aspect of effective mentoring. There are many aspects of spiritual growth that can be transmitted through the study and quantity of Christian literature and listening to good teachers. not, Not belittling that or diminishing that at all. But personality, enthusiasm, laughter, joy, whatever you want to call it, the twinkle in your eye, those things cannot be taught. They have to be caught. I'll explain it in this way. There are intellectual aspects of discipleship, a lot of them. But there is an intangible quality of spiritual life that only flows through relationship. I have this feeling. This is not a scientific study that I've done, but I have a feeling it's right. That a relationship with someone, establishing a relationship that's a trusting relationship, a respectful relationship, gives you a greater opportunity to teach someone what a disciple looks like than any other means. You have to make the relationship. Secondly, when you're enlisting someone to mentor, look to those who have proven reliability. Now, I want you to listen very carefully because I don't want any misunderstanding. There's a Greek word called pistos. It's the word translated as being reliability, which literally means faithful. Why am I sharing this with you? Because we are not to intensively involve ourselves in depositing God's eternal word into the lives of just any believer. Did you catch that? Just any believer. Invest yourself into those whose lives have proven themselves worthy of eternal investment. God gives only one requirement of us, but it's a crucial one. The requirement is faithfulness. Faithfulness is the dividing line between mediocrity and excellence when it comes to Christian living. It's important to note that the requirement is not eloquence, it's not charisma, it's not intellect, it's not natural giftedness. Those are things that tend to capture our eye. But the thing that captures God's eye, friends, is simply faithfulness. There's no limit to the things God can do through a truly faithful believer. John Wesley, the great English evangelist, once said, and I quote, If I had 300 men who feared nothing but God, hated nothing but sin, and were determined to know nothing among men except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, I would set the world on fire. The proof of that is that the world is still reverberating from the effects of John Wesley's faithful ministry. And that brings me to the third principle. I'm hurrying for the sake of time. The third principle that we can apply to our relationship with others is the principle of equipping. Timothy was charged to make sure that the men that he in turn taught were qualified to teach others. In order for them to be qualified for the task, they would need to be equipped for the task. God intends for that equipping to be done by means of relational learning. That's what we are doing right now. We are here. My task as your pastor, 
I know you don't like this, but it's true. Is to equip you so that you can do the work of ministry. God help us if we are part of a church that relies on the pastor to do the ministry. It's not going to happen. Not that I won't, not that I can't. It's just that if it's going to be done effectively, it's going to be done by those who are getting the tools Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, day after day in your own personal devotion and Bible reading to be equipped to do the work of ministry. When it comes to equipping others, I believe that there are three areas that need to be addressed. One, relationships, again. Believers need to be equipped to effectively relate not only to God, to themselves, their mate and their families, their fellow believers, but to a lost world. Secondly, responsibilities. This has to do with the realm of service. Discovering what and how God wants you and I to serve him in this world. Yeah, I'm going to say it. I was just having a conversation with the man upstairs. (laughs) Not everything you want to do for the kingdom of God or would like to do for the kingdom of God has God equipped you to do. Brenda and I do what we call spiritual giftedness inventories every two years. We've done it for many, many years. Uh, uh, it, it, it's a proven scientific test that, that points out to us the areas of giftedness that God has equipped us with in order to better serve the people to whom we minister. I've shared this with some of you. It's, it's amusing to me, but it's a great example of how it works. When, uh, back in 2002, when I went into prison ministry, it happened to be a year that Brenda and I were doing a spiritual giftedness inventory. And it, it's quite a, quite a detailed test, but it's really cool how it all comes together. But when I, when I first went into the prison to start working with those inmates, I was hearing every, every sob story you can imagine. It was amazing to me how that first year prison, almost every one of those guys in that prison were innocent men. At least that's what I got from the stories they told me. And man, I, I tell you what, I, they'd come into my office and they'd share their heart-wrenching story with me and I'd just, I'd just melt. I'd, I, I just had such compassion for them. And, and that was good because that compassion is what eventually led them uh, to trust me enough to share Jesus with them, okay? But what I'm telling you is, on that spiritual giftedness inventory, anybody care to guess what my most dominant gift that God had equipped me for that ministry was? Mercy. I had mercy overflowing. Eight years later, after eight years of prison ministry and hearing over a thousand sob stories, we took the spiritual giftedness inventory again. Mercy was at the bottom of the list. Discernment was my number one giftedness. In other words, over the course of eight years, the wool couldn't be pulled over Terry's eyes as easily as it could at the beginning. That was hugely important because if I had continued along that route, they'd have wore me out in ministry. They'd have wore me out. So you need to understand what areas you are gifted in, what God has gifted you in. And I know there are things that you'd rather be doing than perhaps the area that God has gifted you in. 
Trust me when I tell you, there are a lot of things I would have rather been doing than going inside that prison day after day. But that's where God wanted me at that time. That's where he equipped me to be at that time. And that's where I was. I used to, you know, I knew God had called me into ministry at the age of 13. Without question, I knew I was called. But I spent a lot of years telling God, okay, God, I know you've called into ministry, but this is what we're going to do. <laughs> God had other ideas. Can I just tell you real quickly, this isn't one of them that I told him we were going to do. He had to tell me, this is what I'm equipping you for. This is what I'm preparing you for. Now walk in it. And when I finally surrendered to that, I've been here every Sunday almost since then. Wasn't what I had in mind. Thirdly, reproducing. How do I go about reproducing myself as a follower of Jesus? How can I not only be involved in leading people to make a decision for Christ, but to become true disciples of Christ? By the way, do you know there's a difference between those two things? Becoming and making a decision for Jesus and becoming a true disciple of Jesus, two different things entirely. It's possible to make a decision to ask Jesus into your heart to be your Savior. He forgives your sins. He gives you a new slate. You're a new creation in Christ. It's an altogether different thing to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Here's what I've discovered There are a lot of people who like the idea of Jesus as Savior. We all like that idea, don't we? Thank God. He's our Savior. There are not nearly so many people who sign up for Jesus as Lord. Because that means they have to relinquish the seat on the throne of their life. You've never seen a throne to accommodate two people. Only one. And it has to be him sitting on the throne of your life. And that's why not nearly so many people sign up for Jesus as Lord. But again, back to mentoring. It's one thing to delegate a job. It's another thing to dump a job on someone. Yeah, I figured you'd catch that one. When a job is delegated, the one assigning the task must first make sure the one receiving the assignment is qualified to carry it out. How can one be sure of another's qualification? just as Paul did with Timothy, spending time with them, mentoring them to do the task that they are expected to accomplish. I'm going to get real practical with you here. There's a process, of an equipping process between a mentor and the one they are encouraging toward true discipleship. I think I put it on the Bible app for you to look at and take with you. But here's how it works. Concerning a particular task, the first thing I do is I do the task. The second thing is I do the task, you watch me do the task. The third thing is I do the task, you help me with the task. The fourth thing is you do the task and I help. The fifth thing is you do the task and I watch. And the sixth thing, you do the task. That's the mentoring and equipping process in practical terms. And this leads me to my fourth and final principle. 
in applying our relationship to others. The principle of empowerment. Empowerment has to do with allowing a person we have mentored to move forward in their discipling of someone else. Um, This might get just a little rough for a couple minutes, but please bear with me. It's been said by me and by many others with whom I've been associated with in churches down through the years, that in the church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Have you heard that? Do you know why that is? My answer is probably going to surprise you. But do you know why it is? Because, at least this is what I believe, the 20% doing 80% of the work don't teach anyone else how to do the work. What kind of difference could be made if disciples of Jesus sought not only to be a disciple, but to encourage others to be disciples? Parents wouldn't just seek to make a living, but would teach their kids how to live. Teachers wouldn't just prepare lessons, but they'd prepare others to teach lessons so that more people could be reached. Subtly, I'm introducing the doctrine of multiplication to you. Leaders wouldn't just focus on growing their own group, but on growing new leaders. Evangelists wouldn't just focus on reaching the lost, but on training others to reach the lost. In other words, God's work would move forward exponentially. Acts chapter 6, the first part of the first verse says, in those days the number of the disciples was multiplying. Then you go over to Acts chapter 6, verse number 7. The preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. Acts chapter number 9, verse 31. The churches increased in number. Acts chapter 12, verse number 24. Then God's message flourished and multiplied. The principle of multiplication. What the church, what the kingdom of God needs today is for us to surrender ourselves to letting God give us a multiplication mindset. In very practical terms, and I'm hurrying. Here's what a multiplication mindset looks like. First, and most importantly, they, a person with a multiple, multiplication mindset believes that people grow by being discipled and nurtured instead of being judged and excluded. Legalistic leaders seek to find ways to exclude rather than include people into their circle of love. Disciples of Jesus who have experienced his ways as a result of following him will always, always, always seek to include everyone. 
Disciples with a multiplication mindset live vicarious lives. What does that mean? It means that they see other people reach their dreams, and that gives them as much joy or more than reaching their own dreams. Disciples with a multiplication mindset believe in people. They realize that some people are going to fail, but some will succeed. And they'll also take those losses along with the gains. They have vision, and they are able to articulate that vision to others. A person with a multiplication mindset will focus on healing people and never wounding them. They make God and His people their first and only priority. A person with a multiplication mindset is enthusiastic about giving people to ministry and then releasing them to do that ministry. (laughs) Let me just comment on that. When I say releasing somebody to do ministry, that means you don't keep your thumb on them. That means you release them. If God has called them to do something, you give them all the tools, you equip them with everything they need, but then you don't keep your thumb on them. You remember that practical thing, the last step, step number six, you let them do it. People with a multiplication mindset have integrity and can be trusted He or she is willing to open up their life as an example for people to follow. A person with a a disciple with a multiplication mindset does not seek to control or manipulate people, but leads by motivation rather than manipulation. A disciple with a multiplication mindset has a sense of purpose and is driven by it. A person with a multiplication mindset, and this is the last one, it's certainly not the end of what could be an exhaustive list. A disciple with a multiplication mindset casts vision for those whom he or she leads. And my last statement to you, multipliers multiply. God is not into division. Multipliers multiply. God is not into division. Worship team, would you come please? While they're coming and your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let me just expound for a moment on that statement. Multipliers multiply. God is not into division. Division comes when leaders of churches seek to split a church and urge people to follow them instead of following God. Division will always reduce the size of the circle of God's family. So be a multiplier and keep making the circle of God's family bigger and bigger and bigger. Lord Jesus, this is not one of those hellfire and brimstone messages, but rather a very practical one, a necessary one in order for us to fulfill our role as your disciple. Lord, you didn't give us this saving faith to just give us a feeling of warm fuzzies and the confidence of knowing that our ticket to heaven is punched. You gave us this saving faith. You bestowed your grace that's so amazing upon us so that we could be 
dispensers of grace to others. That we could share the saving faith and the resulting transformation of our lives that came along with it with others who need that same transformation in their life. And once again, God, it seems like I say this every Sunday, but I guess I'm just not adequately equipped to say it in different ways that sound eloquent and intelligent. So I just keep saying it the same way. I don't know where everybody's at in this process of being a disciple. I have no idea. I, I, I see by watching the lives of your people here that a lot of them are really resembling Jesus. And I rejoice for that. Their lives look a lot like your life. And I praise you for that, Jesus. But I also realize that probably the toughest step in being a full-fledged, sold-out, blood-bought disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is having the confidence and the drive to share our faith with someone else. That in spite of the fact that there are literally hundreds of people in our community, if not thousands, that desperately need their lives transformed and changed by you, Jesus. Obviously, Lord, you see in this room this morning as many empty chairs as there are ones who are filled. All of our, all of our programs, all of our cute little ploys that we try to utilize to get people to come to church so that they can hear the gospel. Lord, I think we're beginning to figure out that you never called us to bring them in here. You called us to go where they are. You can't fish for the souls of men in the aquarium of the church house. In order to fish for the souls of men, you have to go where the fish are. And Lord, I'm praying that we get that. That we understand that if we tell somebody about Jesus and that person and then goes and tells somebody about Jesus and then both of them go and tell some others about Jesus, that multiplication effect will soon reach the hundreds and the thousands. And Lord, the reason I know that it will reach them is because you have told us that if, you, if we would be willing to go, then your Holy Spirit would draw them to you. You've prepared the hearts of those that you want us to go to. All you need is our faithfulness to go where we have been sent. And you'll do the rest. You've called us to plant the seed. You'll bring it to fruition so heavenly father this invitation this morning 
we all need to hear. Lord, we've been given the tools, we've been given the equipment. Now we just need the surrender, the enlistment to go. Would you stand with me, please? You see, friends, what brings this whole amazing thing together (laughs) is the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. There's power in that name. Jacob, would you lead us? As morning dawns and evening fades, you inspire songs of praise that rise from earth to touch your heart and glorify your name. Your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Your name, let the peach and sing it louder. Because nothing has the power to save but your name. Sing verse 2 for us, Jacob. Jesus, in your name we pray. Just let him fill you this morning. Our hearts today. And give us strength to live for you. And glorify your name. Your name. Is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Your name, let the nation sing it louder. Because nothing has the power to say but your name. That exactly is what this event on Thursday is all about. Making it possible for the people of this community, this surrounding area, to be a louder voice in speaking the name of Jesus. All he needs, friends, is our willingness. Just go. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. That doesn't mean you have to have a seminary degree. That doesn't mean you have to have a rev in front of your name. What it means is that you are willing to go and share with people what Jesus has done for you. That's it. If he's touched and changed your life, tell someone about it. 
Tell someone about it who needs their life changed and transformed, just like you needed yours. And I promise you, God will take care of the rest. The Holy Spirit will take the seed that you plant and return it a hundredfold, if not more. What if every one of us in this room this morning, over the course of the next five years, led 50 people to Jesus? Wow. You say, don't any of you dare say, man, we'd have a bigger church. We probably would. But that's not what it's about. I'll tell you what it's about. The kingdom would be much bigger. Our community would be much safer. Our community would be much more on fire for Jesus. Because they're going to go out and win 50 of their own. That you'll never have the opportunity to minister to. You see how multiplication works? Do you believe God can use it? Heavenly Father... Thank you for these faithful, faithful people. Now, God, may our faithfulness be played out in practical terms, not on a Sunday morning, not even on a Wednesday night, but on, on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays at the office, at the school, at our family gatherings. May our faithfulness, our confidence in you be experienced by our friends, our neighbors, our families, even those we don't care for so much. Let us show them the love of Jesus and maybe they'll become a totally different person just as we have. We love them, Jesus. We may not like their ways, but you can change all of that. We don't have that task. And it can only be done through your name. Thank you for it. Amen.